0: What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got half the crew here: Kiara Mitchell, hello, and Jake Dello. Sup? So, just one quick weird hit before we get into the show. At the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference uh, oh, last week, two in. weeks ago, <laughs> it's not going to be good already. CPAC conference. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the QAnon congresswoman from Georgia, big-time conspiracy theorist. She's the Jewish space lasers person. She said that Guam is a foreign country. Just to clear the record, Guam is not a foreign country. It's a U.S. territory. It's not given uh, statehood like Hawaii is, but it's a U.S. territory. There's a fucking nuclear bomber base. Pretty crucially important to like american military posture in the pacific and then so jeffrey lewis the uh, arms control walk he's like because she's she's basically saying they don't deserve our foreign aid and he's like i agree either guam sucks it up and sends two senators or we withdraw our troops <laughs> and then he's got like a <laughs> He's got the upside down smiley face emoji, like this is bizarro land. So that was good. And this is retarded. But also, you know, we could go back to Marjorie Taylor Greene and be like, you know what? We've zeroed out their foreign aid. They get zero foreign aid. And that will be true because they don't get foreign aid because they're not a fucking foreign country. Okay. Um, So maybe we could use her ignorance to our advantage.
1: But even then, CPAC, did you see, like, the names of the events they were on? Like, it's how to uncancel yourself and, like, uncanceling yourself <laughs> in a cancel culture world. And it's like, fuck, fuck man, none of these people are about on mainstream.
0: How to uncancel um, yeah. yourself. That's fucking wild. Yeah. I missed yeah. that.
2: Oh, my God. It's just, I feel like I'm in a different world.
0: See, but this is like, if you see CPAC. You see the alternative universe that exists while we're all pretending to be normal for the next four years. Things are going to get nasty pretty soon, like Trump didn't go away.
1: Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. For Prediction Market this week, we're going to a weird place to start off with. Following Russia's refusal to join the United States Artemis project, which aimed to return to the moon by 2024. In the subsequent agreement between themselves and china creating the new international lunar space station will any other nations or great powers become involved in the second moon race before december
0: boom china russia collaboration eh? yeah in some ways this is you know america is not helping the situation i don't know if like america caused this so much we like we're not going to be able to get along with Putin sufficient to prevent him from space collaboration with China. But it's also not a good thing. Like, it's the next frontier of strategic competition. It's already happening. I don't have any good feelings about this, let's say, but I also don't see anybody else joining the space race immediately there are a bunch of other countries in space doing shit but none of them with the i don't know anti-american backdrop yeah. that china and russia have
1: i feel a lot of the people commenting on this are forgetting that uh space exploration now is mainly in the private market mm-hmm. it's well the, the frontier that we are thinking of is in the private market this sort of strategic competition is always in the government sphere yeah but you know spacex space labs in new zealand even mm-hmm but these are all possible participants in this, and it's going to be very interesting to see which side of the fence uh, they go on. Yeah. You
0: mean Rocket Labs, not Rocket. Space Labs? Yeah, yeah. I heard this was, that Rocket Labs was, the founders are Kiwi, and they have a location here, but they're technically headquartered in the States for yeah, legal reasons yeah. or something? Is that right? Uh, it wouldn't
1: surprise me, but I know that they occupied some uh, maori land in mahia that was not very popular so i mean there's there's a lot of controversy with rocket labs but even then you know it's still space exploration based in new zealand which is very it's a very foreign concept i think a lot of new zealanders as well question two following the bombshell meeting of the quad could or would any other pacific states join obviously it wouldn't be a quad but you know you know what i mean
0: quad plus or whatever Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's talk of South Korea and New Zealand and one other country that um, uh, the US is interested in bringing in. But every other country has like their own unique reservations for why they would not want to join. This point, it's all uh, symbolic and performative. Like, it looks like this signal that's kind of anti-China, which is fair. But it's also not really doing anything like they're having meetings. They coordinated this great vaccine package in the recent summit of the quad. So like they're doing to the extent they're doing anything. It's positive things that are broadly beneficial slash inclusive. I think that that's doing a lot of reputation laundering for what is at core an anti-China balancing coalition, but it's not a, because it's not a successful balancing coalition and because I'm not sure that it will ever be, it's not so dangerous, you know, like it doesn't send a, a warm and friendly signal to China. But it's not I, I don't see why it would be costly. And frankly, if like a bunch of other countries joined, it would kind of dilute that whole anti-China sort of colonial face that it that sometimes has. But like South Korea is not interested. They would only do it if, if they can get some kind of quid pro quo. New Zealand is, I don't know, they they don't have a strategic framework for their decisions, so it would, it would be very reactive if they did or didn't do it.
1: Yeah, we don't have a strategic framework for anything. Let's be real. <laughs> Especially when it comes to this sort of stuff. But there is no, I don't think there is any desire for New Zealand to join the quad, even if it would be beneficial. I, feel, I have a feeling more talk about the quad is going to be coming up in our analysis, so we might leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Question three. Will any other states follow the lead of the United States and most recently Kosovo and Guatemala and officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital city by opening embassies there before December?
0: I bet you the answer is yes. Um, (laughs) Part of it because it's like the path of least resistance. You know, there's not a lot of nation states who are lobbying against. Um, setting up your capital in Jerusalem, but you do have Israel and the United States who's lobbying for it. I think that inertia favors people relocating to Jerusalem, even though it's like, eh, do you realize like how this came about, right? And that the Palestinian issue is nowhere near resolved, um, not even remotely. So yeah, I, I totally see that happening more. I I, could, I bet you the fucking Pacific the Compact nations. Like I could see yeah. that Micronesia and Palau and the Marshall Islands voting with with Israel because it's voting with the U.S. I mean,
1: the word the, the term "strange bedfellows" comes up when I see the United States, Kosovo, and Guatemala together. And there's prediction market this week. Mm.
2: Time for safe Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. For stay. Twitter this week I have two tweets the first one is from Spencer Ackerman Um, super weird how the right is whining about about a woke US military the moment there's a black defence secretary and a long overdue review of white supremacists in uniform. Liberals who want to smuggle forever wars under nonsensical veneer of progressism progress words apologies are a different problem I suppose the flip side of this one And I was wondering what your opinion on that is.
0: Yeah, the right whining about the U.S. military uh, appointing minorities, vetting extreme radicalism (laughs) within its ranks, appointing women, and it's like all these things are somehow bad slash worrying. And you find reasons to view these things as negatives when it's like the only thing that could possibly save the institution itself. And he, I like, he has the uh, proper leftist caveat of like, look, getting yeah. getting equality and inclusion within the military does not give the military a pass, but it is something that needs to happen. So yeah, kudos.
1: Yeah, I, that's the part I like too. The, that, that part that got included, that makes it all the worth it for me. Yeah.
2: So the second tweet I have is what I guess would be the flip side of Spencer Ackerman's tweet. It's from JD Vance. We should eliminate the university degree requirement from the officer cause. It is dumb to make people get a BA before coming officers anyway, and it may just make the military leadership less woke.
0: Garbage. <laughs> Possibly a garbage person. This guy, this is the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. The oh you yeah, you need fucking... you need to understand these fucking Trump bumpkins and like have empathy for them and let's focus on them and not anything else. So like, not surprisingly, what's funny is he stumbles into this statement that in ways could be correct, just not based on his own reasoning. So like the need to have a degree, uh, obviously I support higher education. It's my like livelihood at this point, but it's especially in the United States there's all kinds of demographic and class and racial barriers to getting degrees. Like, you can't have your officer corps is going to be disproportionately white men when you have this kind of litmus test requirement for becoming an officer. So, it's almost like you need an alternative path to becoming an officer in order to have more egalitarian and inclusive ranks, but not having anything to do with fucking. The fact that he even said the word woke like makes me angry yeah
1: i I mean i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to push back slightly with that because would would you not say that a better answer would be to make education more inclusive and the accessibility to education would be the key as opposed to removing that requirement for the officers because what i've found when i came to university it's not really they teach you what to think is they teach you how to think Mm. And I think that would be very important for an officer.
2: I agree with you there, Jake. It's like definitely making education more accessible to people.
0: So this I'm I'm a little bit torn about this because like what you're pointing to is a very upstream solution that is yeah. not realistic, especially in the US. It's like, oh, you're gonna fix higher education so that you have better military officers. Like it's too that's too far upstream, even though it's true. Right? And you should want your military officers to uh, be educated. You don't want a bunch of knuckle-dragging idiots. Presumably, that's possible to not have those in the military. So you want to have like the most educated core that you can. But when you impose requirements about higher education, you suddenly limit the pool of available people. Yeah. You, you create accessibility problems. And so the military can make changes for that. By changing its rules, but it can't change American society, which devalues higher education. You know, but yeah, like I I think ideally that that is the optimal solution, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is something very elitist sounding about the way I put. That last point, I don't. I don't think that you need to go to university to be able to critically think. I don't. I think that's a very toxic attitude. No, I think I actually agree with you that one, Van. Like, it's 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 a very high stream problem. It's going to take a hell of a long time to do. It might as well just remove the requirement and have it based on you know meritocratic system.
0: But I don't want a bunch of ignorant officers either. And so, like, there has to be yeah, some yeah. way. There has to, It really is a higher education problem, though. Like an accessibility problem, because like you got to have people who are who can like prove that they have a certain level of intelligence, you know? But like if you're not doing anything to make it equally accessible in the first place to get that level of of ability to process problems or whatever, then it, you're going to continually have this biased distribution in your officer class, you know? Anyway, we're not solving any problems here.
1: Optimistic is it?
0: You know. <laughs> All right, Frankfurt school. Um, so Lacey Healy, I got two real quick. One, the the founder of Inkstick Media, it's a great website, uh, Lacey Healy, she just has a very short tweet that says, Your quote unquote think tank is not a think tank if all your experts agree. It's an advocacy shop. And oh, can you shout that a little
1: bit louder for the ones at the back?
0: <laughs> yeah, a bit... I had to think about it. I had this like gut reaction, like, hell yeah. And then I was like, wait a minute. Do I agree with this? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> the, uh, the context of this was, or she's like sort of subtweeting, I, I'm assuming, the Atlantic Council, which is a big well-funded think tank in the US, they had some people, Emma Ashford and one other person, publishing this report on Russia. And they had a bunch of um, Russia experts within their think tank publish a letter of condemnation, like the equivalent of like hashtag never Trump or whatever, except condemning... The Russia report So they were writing An open letter Condemning One of the products Produced by people At their same think tank (laughs) Which I've never seen Happen before It's super weird And like I said on Twitter Like I'm I'm affiliated with Five or six different think tanks and like i disagree with so much of the shit that other people are writing but it's like it would be a full-time job for me to rebut every single one of these things i disagree with do you like stay in your lane you know the false consensus stuff is a problem i
1: like that there is a attitude of it's not infighting it's real just academic discussion really because without i disagree with so many people that i normally would agree with and that's so healthy
0: but that's what the irony is like this letter is trying to enforce consensus because they didn't act they didn't argue the merits of the piece. They denounced the piece. And so it's it's a conf- they're trying to like impose conformity. Anyway, fucking. Second tweet, Rachel Rizzo. Is it physically possible to sit at the computer and write without first wasting at least an hour on YouTube and Twitter? And I believe the answer is no. Uh, I have to waste. <laughs> 20 minutes watching uh, somebody do a heel hook in a submission grappling tournament for some reason before I can write 500 words. I cannot like not oh, yeah. just fucking <laughs> it's like my warm-up to do mindless shit and it did not yeah, used to yeah. be like this.
1: Let's jump into intro analysis where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. I'm substituting for the bro Pete for armchair analysis this week, so I hope I do it justice. This article is from Foreign Affairs by an obscure scholar of disrepute called Dr. Van Jackson. That was his writing, not mine, Van. I swear on my life, please don't shoot.
0: it. was not my idea, by the way, that this piece be the armchair analysis. (laughs) Pete wanted this to be armchair, and then he bailed and gave it to Jay. Of course he bailed.
1: edition to see how meta we can get. So the article starts, a free Indo-Pacific has become America's key policy lens through through which it understands its aims to reform the region. On his first phone call with Chinese leader Xi Jinping after taking office, United States President Joe Biden stressed that preserving a free and open Indo-Pacific was one of his top priorities. And only a decade ago, the phrase Indo-Pacific would have left most foreign policy experts scratching their heads. Today, it's not just stock language in Washington, but a widely accepted reconceptualization of Asia that is rearranging United States foreign policy. According to Van, the Indo-Pacific's evolution from unfamiliar term of foreign policy cliché is not the product of rigorous policy debates or careful consideration. Rather, Washington's national security establishment has unthinkingly internalized the Trump-era turn of phrase, it is rife with unrealistic expectations and unvetted assumptions. The goal of a free and open Indo-Pacific may sound noble, but pursuing it will lead the United States astray.
0: Is that a fair little price event? I think that Pete copied and pasted the entire intro to the article and then gave it to you as notes. That is literally just what I wrote. <laughs> That's not a summary. That's what I fucking wrote. Pete, fuck yes, you. Sweat, he Lord sandbagged Pete. you. Sweat, Lord. He gave you a turd am... under a rock. <laughs> this is a flaming bag of poop that he's handed you in the form of my article. Do they forget that I edit
1: this every week and I get every gaffe <laughs> that they've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> oh. They forget my
0: power. So what else does he say? Or that you say? <laughs> well, the, the questions that
1: I sort of came out with after reading the article myself, I didn't take as many notes as Peter's. I didn't know that I was going to be doing this how does how much impact does the analytic concept really have isn't this obscure administrative infighting? and aren't analysts smart enough to look deeper and the second question i really came out with is when would the indo-pacific be a useful analytic frame
0: yeah i mean good questions the the first thing the first question the term itself might when this got first rolled out when people were talking about it in the obama era and then even in the beginning of the Trump era, I kind of rolled my eyes because they were making it was basically political assertions about what the Asia ought, what the region ought to be branded as, and they were try they were it was basically a campaign, led largely out of Australia and Japan, but not entirely, to yeah. change stop basically stop using Asia, and, and then use Indo Pacific instead, and they had gotten their hooks of influence into uh, Harry Harris, who's the pacific command commander at the time in the latter obama days and so he had put in the works to this was pre-trump put in the works to change the name of his command headquarters to indo-pacific command instead of pacific command and the asia pacific security affairs office where i worked in the pentagon they were following suit and south asia was always part of the the play space like where and analysis was happening and decisions were being made and ships were being moved and stuff like that was part of the area of responsibility. But the reason why the rebranding mattered ultimately was because they weren't treating India, South Asia anymore as its own sub region, which is what it is. There are intersections with South Asia and East Asia, right? But the the whole point of making this word this phrase substitute for Asia, it was in order to shift US strategy and US force posture toward the Indian Ocean and then like there was a secondary argument about pulling India eastward like, get them more into East Asia stuff. But one, changing the name of the region is not going to make India do more East Asia stuff. Like, that's fatuous, that's silly. And India, before there was even this big Indo-Pacific campaign in Washington, India had already developed under Modi look East policy that became an act East policy. But it's the idea that they're, like, trying to be more interested in East Asia happenings, right? And they, like... They uh, represent at like ASEAN Regional Forum and certain certain like pan-regional bodies, you know, like they're part of the mix. But everything that's going yeah, on in cool. South Asia is like its own thing. The proof of that is when you look at the rivalry and the conflict between India and Pakistan, which is, there's you don't have a comparable dynamic in East Asia or in the Pacific. What got me worried, A, was that Biden was continuing... This tradition of just treating the whole region as like this giant mega monolith, kind of uncritically. But also like these statements that came out of the Biden's first hundred days about the readout of the phone call with South. South Korea is the linchpin of Indo-Pacific security. South Korea, no offense, couldn't find a fucking Indian Ocean on a map. I don't mean that literally, guys. But, like, South Korea does not have a, like, national security stake or role in the Indian Ocean, right? And India plays no meaningful role in the Pacific Islands, right? Or on the Korean Peninsula. And the idea that you're actually having phone calls where you say that these countries are the linchpins and the cornerstones of each other's security is analytically false. It's ridiculous. Everybody knows that's not true it's a political act to be doing this and so the like why what's what's the reason for the political act and the reason is to balance china if that's the core question then that's what we should be talking about and you're not going to get south korea or at least the way things are now you're not going to get south korea onto a balancing coalition with china or new zealand uh probably not even like singapore and so the debates about the quad are kind of a proxy for debates about the Indo Pacific and where America should be focusing its resources and all of that. And my, my take in the foreign affairs piece was basically just like, I mean, I make a bunch of fucking random points that are all connected, but the, my, my, (laughs) the thing that was motivating it really was that like our interests and our advantages are in East Asia and in the Pacific and when we do this indo-pacific rebranding it's in order to shift our resources toward the indian ocean and that's not to our advantage that's shifting our resources to a place where we have big disadvantages and our interests are basically zero except for this balancing game and the balancing game itself is not being interrogated because it's 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 being covered up with this like the mask of free and open indo-pacific shit let's have a real debate about balancing China and where Indian Ocean fits in that. But then beyond that, we don't need to do this Indo-Pacific rebranding and we lose a lot in the process, you know, very against the conventional wisdom.
1: How long ago did this desire really start to take hold um, within, within the conventional sphere?
0: I mean, for India and Australia, this is like a long time because they front the Indian Ocean. For Japan, I remember in the early 2000s some Japanese national security strategists talking about wanting to partner more with India as uh, implicitly a check on China. And I think they, they were never like super explicit about their motives. But what, what I took away was that they thought that if they could bog down China in the Indian Ocean somehow or get it distracted. In the Indian Ocean, it would take the pressure off of the Senkakus in um, Northeast Asia. Yeah. And so it's like a very clever way, possibly, of, you know, stabilizing your own region, your own sub-region, but kind of at the expense of South Asia. The U.S. was kind of just <laughs> aloof of all of this for a long time. But there was this Office of Net Assessment in the Pentagon that is like very forward-looking. They were the ones who were doing all the like long-term competition stuff with the Soviet union in the cold war. They were the first ones to identify China as like the emerging threat back in the nineties. They were talking about China as a threat way before it was warranted. And so you can call them either scaremongers or prophetic, or I don't know what, but um, they're relevant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. They just were looking for another malign actor that could fit the old model. Like, um, it just depends on what your, you know, your politics are, or whatever, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> basically this Office of Net Assessment in the Bush era, like in the middle of the war on terror stuff, they started realizing that we needed to be focused more on Asia. And so they were making recommendations to start shifting resources toward Asia. Specifically within that, they also name checked the Indian Ocean. They're like, look, the Indian Ocean's this huge blind spot for us. We should be causing problems for China there. We should be bringing a cost imposition strategy to China via the Indian Ocean. And so that was like, that was percolating in the Pentagon whenever I showed up there in 09. It kept gaining traction. Um, The South China Sea was like the hot thing whenever I was there. But then in that transition from Obama to Trump, South China Sea died off as a sexy issue because people still paid attention to it, but we had kind of lost. There was clearly nothing we were going to be able to do to like demilitarize the South China Sea. China had an advantageous position. We were just kind of fucked. So the strategic attention started drifting toward the Indian Ocean at that point. And uh, yeah, that's it. And then like between Australia and Japan whispering to uh, the Trump administration and the Trump administration needing a concept for its uh, for its rivalry with China. The Indian Ocean made a sense in a lot of ways. If your goal is balanced China, I think that there's something to be said for considering being more active in the Indian Ocean but it's a question of like How much what kinds of involvement are you generating new commitments? What risks does it involve and no one's really asking those questions? They're just kind of plowing ahead. So like this was yeah, kind of is. a, a counter programming piece
1: That's the bit that worries me. Man. No one's asking these questions. And I think everyone's just taking for granted that China is a global boogeyman at the moment.
0: Yeah. Europe is starting to jump on this bandwagon too.
1: Fucking that's the last thing we need. It's not like Europe to go start any global conflicts or anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, the last time Europe was super engaged in Asia, yeah. it pretty <laughs> it wasn't a good luck. It was the age of Empires. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll see.
1: Well, that concludes um, this week's edition of armchair copy and paste.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything.
2: This week for Ask Me Anything, I've got two questions. The first one is from Anonymous, and I will just say this here then. Answer carefully. (laughs) If National asked you to run as a list MP, would you do it? Answer carefully.
0: So, National is the conservative party in New Zealand, like the GOP equivalent. And uh, uh, MP is a congressman, like a minister of parliament. Would I do it? Probably not. Oh, what a killjoy! What a killjoy! Actually, you know, I thought this is a very weird question, but like, I it made me think like, what if, what if you could infiltrate them? And then start like funneling information out. There could be actually like an interesting space there. But I don't know. I'm not political in the New Zealand context.
1: Can, can the person who asked this question hit me up on Twitter and just um let me know what why after listening to this podcast every week you thought that van would make a good fit for the National Party? I'm That's really curious question. as to your reasoning. <laughs> I've
0: yeah, totally no, disqualified like... myself, yeah. The
2: second question is from... Sofía Gola, what is your assessment of the Biden presidency so far?
0: Uh, kind of all over the place. On domestic policy, <laughs> he's, he's come out pretty strongly as progressive, like left liberal, but still progressive. And even the other day, he gave a speech. I just saw this on a little fucking clip on YouTube or something. He was denouncing trickle-down economics. And I think he might be the first president to ever do that, which is a big deal. Like, that's that's something that's something real. Plus, he's he's pushed the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus and the minimum minimum wage hike. And uh, he's accelerated the vaccination program and he's looking to do all kinds of like public infrastructure stuff and he's empowering the fed the federal reserve system to basically it requires its own episode actually but he's doing a whole bunch of stuff with the fed that is very progressive and like he's not beholden to fears about inflation so there's a lot here domestically on foreign policy i haven't really seen shit i mean like it's it's less vitriolic and inflammatory than the Trump days, but it's not, I'm not impressed so far. Um, he hasn't dropped the ball or completely failed on anything, but I'm just not seeing anything different than what like Obama would have done at all. The only difference is that he's not pursuing uh regional free trade and that kind of cuts both ways. That's not fully good or fully bad it's just different from Obama but otherwise it's it it really is so far Obama 2.0 so I'm holding my breath I'm trying to like be careful about my criticisms but he's acting very different on foreign policy than on domestic policy so far well
1: it seems Biden's sort of taking well, well you're right man like you said it would take an entire episode this isn't really a short AMA question but um, he's doing sort of what he said he would
0: um, yeah broadly he's being more progressive yeah, domestically than I think he said he would which is kind of yeah. fascinating but uh, yeah like hes it's its as expected with foreign policy so far alright gang that's gonna do it uh, what's my outro buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees cottonbureau.com search undiplomatic to find our shirts and hoodies catch you next time peace